The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hour, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about advertising, believe it or not. We're going to be talking with a wonderful expert who comes to us from Chicago, my old alma mater hometown. And we are going to be speaking with Lisa Thomas, who is an attorney. And she's developed a very unique advertising law practice, providing privacy law counseling to major consumer brands, advertising agencies, and consumer research companies, among others. Lisa Thomas joined Winston & Strawn in 2005 as a partner, bringing to the advertising law group her extensive experience in privacy, trademark, and youth marketing laws. She has been a frequent and popular author on the subject of advertising and privacy laws, and she's an adjunct professor at John Marshall Law School in their Information Technology LLM program. Lisa assists her clients with privacy compliance and data security issues, and she helps coordinate national and worldwide clearances of interactive advertising programs including advising clients on compliance with email, fax, direct mail, and data breach notification laws. And she also helps her clients with acquisition, commercialization, and enforcement of their intellectual property rights. We have a lot more about her at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Also, you can find out more about her at her own website, winston.com. That's W-I-N-S-T-O-N dot com. Thank you, Lisa, from, for joining us from the beautiful Midwest. Hi, Mari. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today on the show. Well, you know, all this issue about advertising and privacy and target advertising are, are huge these days. So you are right in the right place. Why don't you explain to my audience what they're talking about when they talk about behavioral advertising? Sure. Behavioral advertising is, is it sounds sometimes a little bit scary, but it's something uh, that's pretty fundamental to advertising, and it really just means customizing the marketing message to be suitable for the audience. And it's designing that content, the advertising content, based off of what your consumer is doing. And we see this all the time, or we used to see it a lot um, in the offline world, and I think we still do a fair bit. For example, if you go into a grocery store and you use a loyalty card in your grocery store, you'll often get a coupon after you make a purchase. And the coupon might relate to something that you've purchased last time or something that you purchased earlier. 
Um, sometimes people say that those who buy um, baby formula are um, great purchasers of beer. So people who buy baby formula might get encouragement for um, things that they might find of interest. And, and we see that a lot. And the idea is that um, the advertising message is more powerful and is also less annoying to the consumer if it's something that they're interested in. So, so what are the laws that impact marketers who, who engage in this type of practice? Well, we have two types of laws. We have laws that impact advertisers and um, deal with consumers in an offline world. And then we also have a new set of laws that are coming about to help consumers and to give marketers and advertisers perspective of what they should be doing in the online world. In the offline world, the type of laws that we see, there's not a lot of them. Um, there's a handful of states, including California, that have laws that impact what type of information that you can collect in a retail establishment during a credit card transaction. So we're, sometimes we're asked, you may not be asked in California, but those of us here in Chicago, we still get asked when we're making a purchase if we'll provide the store with our phone number or with our email address or with our zip code. And there are states like California that prohibit asking that information during a credit card transaction. And what I've been told by my tech folks and, and my, my clients is that the reason why they ask this information is because it's used later on to then send you marketing materials. So there is a restriction in an offline environment in certain states. In an online environment, we, we have a new world that's developing. So we talked about what behavioral advertising is generally, but in an online environment, it, it can go so much further um, because we might be looking on, say, Amazon about what is a great book about World War II. And so we look and we search on Amazon for books about World War II. And then all of a sudden we start to see lots of additional books that are being suggested to us. And, and we're many of us are familiar with um, the language that we see on that site that say others who viewed this book also like, and then we see a whole bunch of other books. So I think for consumers, there was a concern. All of a sudden, there's this transparency. We can see that someone is watching what we're doing. And the FTC responded to this transparency by putting out a set of principles to govern when um, online adver it's certain types of online advertising practices. And those principles are not actually a law. You asked what laws impact um, companies. This is not a law, these principles that we have from the FTC, but they are a guidance, and the FTC has come out with lots of guidances like this because they bring action against companies when a company engages in a deceptive or an unfair practice. And those cases are brought under the, the FTC's authority under the Federal Trade Commission Act, which sometimes we refer to as the Deceptive Trade Practices Act. And the act prohibits generally practices that are deceptive or practices that are unfair, and that's very broadly worded. So it can be hard to know what would be a deceptive practice, what would be an unfair act. So the FTC helps out companies, and it puts together these guidances and principles and directions and directives and guides to explain to companies, if you were to do this, we would view that as an unfair act. 
So the, last year, the FTC put out a set of principles with respect to behavioral advertising. Set of principles is actually pretty narrow. So in the example I gave on Amazon, that's we're looking on Amazon, and we're looking for a book on Amazon. We see different books that we might be interested in on Amazon. That's not actually covered under the FTC principles. Instead, what's covered is when the advertising would be served to us on another website. So we might be looking on Amazon for a book about World War II, and then we go to Hulu and we want to watch a, a TV show, and we get served with an ad for a movie that relates to World War II. And the reason why we're served with this movie might have to do with the fact that we were surfing for a book about World War II. And so that is considered... Um, that is the type of behavioral advertising that's covered under the FTC principles. So we have activity on one website, and then we get served with an ad on another website. So, yeah, so yeah. it makes sense, you know, when, when I go to Amazon and I'm looking for privacy books, I want to see privacy authors. So for me, you know, I'm going there, I, w I might expect to see something sent to me or shown to me right then and there about other books I might want to buy that relate to that. So that doesn't seem real invasive. I think the stuff that's scary that I think the Federal Trade Commission is, is you know, kind of alluding to is the, the lack of transparency when we don't know where some of this stuff is coming from or it's, it's insidiously, you know, they're, they're collecting information and we get it in, in kind of strange ways that we wouldn't know to expect. So can you share with us some of those principles that the FTC came up with last year? Absolutely. So, and, and I call it sometimes the, the creepiness factor. Mm -hmm. that, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing for us to um, see everything on one website, but we start to get a little creeped out if it's happening across multiple websites. That's not, creepiness is not actionable under the FTC <laughs> principles um, right. or the FTC Act. It has to be something that's deceptive or unfair. Um, so we're going to have to see what kinds of cases they actually bring. Um, but the principles that they've put together have two main components. The first component is that you give consumers notice that their, their actions are being tracked for behavioral advertising purposes. And again, it's not when it's happening on the same site, but when it's going across multiple sites. And then the second element is to give consumers choice about whether or not their uh, behavior is going to be tracked. And the FTC came out with these principles last year, and the industry, four industry groups, including the, um, the Direct Marketing Association, the Internet Advisory Board, and a few others, came together and said, we're going to come up with our own principles. We agree um, that with the FTC that Know, that notice and choice is a great idea, um, and they issued essentially the same principles. They, they weren't identical, but they very much mirrored the FTC principles and took it a step further and talked about the different parties that are involved in behavioral advertising. So, of course, you have the first website where the information is gathered, and you have the second website where the advertisement is served, and then you have various players um, within that, so maybe an ad network that is making the ad appear on the second 
that are giving people access to the internet and that or to a particular website, so a browser company, they might be involved in some way in the serving of the ad. So the, the industry principles talked about the roles and responsibilities with respect to notice and choice for these various players. Those industry principles, I think it's confusing for companies to know, well, notice, that, that's great, and, and choice, sure, but how do we make that happen? How do we give consumers choice? It, it's, the ad isn't eventually going to get served on our own website. So how does this transpire? And the industry groups said, well, we'll put together a set of guidelines. We'll put together a program so that companies can participate in this program and through this program can give consumers notice and can give consumers choice. And that those guidelines and those program, that program was actually just recently put together. And a few weeks ago, the industry groups launched a new website that's aboutads.info, so A-B-O-U-T-A-D-S.info. Um, and at this aboutads.info website, there's information for companies about how they can give consumers notice that online behavioral advertising practices are happening um, and then how to give consumers choice. And this is very helpful for companies because it allows choice to be exercised across the multiple websites where an ad might appear. So is it all opt-out rather than opt-in? That's a great question. For most companies that are involved in this practice, it's an opt-out practice. So it would be um, this is happening, here's what to do if you're no longer interested in it happening. There's a very small universe of companies that have to get consumer consent before the practice happens. And that small universe of companies are really the ones that are providing, I, I call them the ones that are providing the platform. So they're the ones that are the internet service providers, the service provider, um, it, the way it's, it's defined under the industry principles, and it's the industry principles that have this concept of opt-in, um, not the FTC principles. The industry principles talk about the companies that are letting you access multiple websites, the companies that are, are really giving you access to the various areas of the Internet, whether it's so a, a, browser, a website browser, for example. And I think one of the questions that will come up um, is that the FTC indicated that it believes um, that online behavioral advertising is not strictly an Internet issue for the way most of us, well, most of us lawyers, um, who are not the right generation, I think, <laughs> um, but most of us lawyers think about the Internet because we think about a computer, um, but our children and all of those hip, young people out there think about their phone, and they don't access the Internet through their phone. They access it through, or I'm sorry, through their computer. They, they access it through their phone, through their iPad, their iPhone. And the FTC did indicate that they believe that the, the notice and choice principles and concepts should be applicable and should be carried out regardless of the platform, so to these newer platforms, which are, you know, newer to us, I'm sure it's old hat to yeah. all of the young kids, and that 
that's going to be, I think, a challenge for um, some companies going forward is, is really how do we, if we're providing um, platform access, where do we fit in? We don't really have good guidelines out there yet. So that's mm. something that we're certainly looking um, to see coming down the pike. Well, I would think that the the whole group, the Direct Marketing Association and everybody else are probably going to have to get together again and come up with guidelines. And um, that would make sense because then they obviously if they're going to come up with guidelines and hopefully they're going to be best practices or at least good practices, then Congress won't have to do that. Yeah, and I think that's always the hope with self-regulation. And I think the FTC really looks to the industry um, that it, it makes life easier for everyone. It's less expensive for taxpayers. It's um, easier on the industry. If you have self-regulation, that can change um, and, and keep up with uh, modifying technologies more quickly. Um, and, and you get a lot of input from the people who are creating the platforms and the infrastructure in how can we make things happen. Um, so we'll see if this keeps in the self-regulatory area. I think um, it, it would make life a lot easier for a lot of the players if it was. And, you know, Lisa, I think that the whole thing depends on whether people are going to adhere to it. If there's no enforcement, then there's there may be a chance that the companies that are not as ethical maybe or as um, privacy oriented they may not do it and so that's the problem if you if you don't if you have self regulation and um, and the federal trade commission can't really enforce everything on everybody um, they're going to go after the big guys that uh, that's my experience with self regulation is a lot of times there, there really isn't enough teeth in it to, to keep it as self-regulation. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's, that's, an, that's a very interesting question, whether self-regulation really works. And I'm involved in various groups and that, that think about these issues. And for, for me, self-regulation makes a lot of sense. The, the FTC may not bring a lot of cases but when it does bring cases, companies generally tend to take notice. And companies, the ones that I work with, they're really looking for direction and they're looking for guidance. Um, and they're not looking to, to be on the, 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 in the gray area with respect to the law. So the, the nice thing about self-regulation and, and the, the ways that I've seen it be very helpful is really for the, the business people, for the technical team, for the marketing team. It's nice to have a very detailed set of guidelines that say you must do A, B, C, D, and E. And that's something that they can get their hands around. It's there. It's printed. It's in writing. They're doing it. Their, their colleagues at other, at other companies are doing it. And, and often I've, I've seen them take to these industry guidelines as if they were the law. Yes. Um, so I actually see that if it, 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 sometimes it doesn't really matter if it's a law or not. If, if it's a, a set of principles or guidelines that an industry organization has put out, it is often used by companies as if it were the law. Right. And what, what about with regard to people who are hurt by this? I mean, will they... If they use that, is that considered the standard, that, that you're below standard if you don't follow these guidelines that are the self-regulation guidelines? 
Well, they, there's two interesting things that you said about that. I, I think this goes back to the creepiness factor. Um, the, the, the FCC is authorized to, to stop unfair or deceptive acts. So the question, if the, viol if the principles are violated, is going to be what was the deceptive act? So how did a company deceive the consumer, or how did the company behave in a way that was fundamentally unfair? And, and I'm, I'm not quite sure how that case would look. Um, I, I think that the, the real issue um, becomes, or, or a potential issue could be if you had a warehouse of a huge amount of data and you failed to protect that information. So you really you know everything that there is to know about a consumer. And you're just, you're, you're, you've got mountains and mountains of information about that consumer. And you didn't, um, and the consumer didn't know that you were building it, and perhaps you're not taking enough uh, security steps to protect that information. Maybe that would give rise to an action um, under the FTC Act for failure to follow these principles. Um, but certainly with any industry guidelines, and, and I think that this is what you were alluding to, is that with any industry guidelines, once everybody starts to follow them, they sort of become the de facto minimum standard. And so if someone's not adhering to those, then are you violating the law? And to me, that comes into play with respect to deception, is that if everyone's doing it this way because it's what the industry standards say, then consumers are going to begin to expect that that's what you're doing. And I don't think we're there yet with behavioral advertising. But certainly in other areas, um, consumers come to expect that you're going to make certain disclosures. And as I say this, I'm trying to think of an example. And I'll think of one okay. at some point. I can't think of a good one right now. Huh. Um, but th this is th consumers will believe that this is the way um, everyone is acting. So if you deviate from that standard, then they, you violated an implied representation to them. And that would be actionable under the um, Deceptive Trade Practices Act. And aside from the Federal Trade Commission, when we're talking about there's two sets of, there's the guidelines that were the self-regulation, and then there's the guidelines from the FTC. And you said they're similar but distinct. So would there ever be a private right of action other than the Federal Trade Commission for violations of behavioral advertising with regard to the guidelines? There, there, I would, it would be kind of hard to see how a private right of action would specifically reference um, the industry guidelines or the FTC principles. But we could see potentially private rights of action arising under laws that are similar to the Deceptive Trade Practices Act. In, in most states, there's an Unfair Business Practices Act or something that is often referred to as a Little FTC Act, which um, many of those give um, causes of action, private, cause, private rights of action. Um, and the argument would need to be the same. So the, the argument would have to be that the consumer was um, treated unfairly or that they were somehow deceived. Mm -hmm. and, and so I don't know that a, a case would actually specifically reference the guidelines, but it might be developed in the same way. Right. Or if they opted out and they continued to 
have this behavioral advertising and something exactly. happen if there was some exactly. harm that was done by that, maybe yep. something like that. You know, when you were talking about offline, I was thinking about our, um, you know, the law with regard to collecting information with regard to a credit card transaction in California. This um, this collecting of the phone number and an address and everything, uh, if it is it is if you go into and I just I'm saying this for the people in California, if you go into a retailer and you let them know or before you let them know how you're going to pay, if they start to ask you for your phone number and your address and then you pay with a credit card, that is a violation. Or if they ask you for that information in conjunction, that's the wording in conjunction with a credit card transactions transaction, that is a violation of California law. However, after you make the credit card transaction or if you make a transaction with a check or cash, they have the right to ask you that information and you can say yes or no, I don't want to do that. So just wanted to help my my California audience kind of understand how that works. And the one of the reasons is because of identity theft, actually, um, that with the, the more information that they get in conjunction with getting all the credit card information would possibly lead to more identity theft. Or if they have that information, they have a phone number, they have an address, that would help them more to commit identity theft. Aside from the harassment of marketing, that was really the reason as well, most recently at least, how it's been interpreted. So just thought I'd share with you why we're doing that in California. Makes but, sense. Yeah. I just want to introduce again, we are speaking with this wonderful articulate adjunct professor and unique advertising uh, law practice that Lisa Thomas has. She provides uh, privacy law counseling to major consumer brands, advertising agencies, and consumer research companies. And she is with the law firm of Winston & Strawn in Chicago, Illinois. And she is a partner. So that is wonderful. You know, you started to talk about mobile and phone marketing with kids. Let's let's talk about that, for example. What, what laws actually govern mobile marketing by text message? Well, we've got that old standby that we were talking about with respect to behavioral advertising, and that's the baseline is always the Deceptive Trade Practices Act. So, again, that is the law that is enforced at the federal level by the Federal Trade Commission. Um, in addition, states have laws um, that are very similar, so they have their little FTC acts, and, and this, again, says that we can't be deceptive um, or unfair. So with respect to mobile marketing, so sending text messages, we can't be deceptive or unfair in how we do that. That's one law. And there's two others that do specifically mention text messaging. The first one is the Can Spam Act. And a lot of people are familiar with the Can Spam Act as it relates to email marketing. There's also a portion of the law that relates to text message advertising, but that law applies in pretty narrow circumstances only when there's certain types of technology that's used to send the message. And from what I understand from most companies that do this, that technology is rarely used. Um, but it is important to know if the technology is used. We as consumers, as recipients of the text messages, we won't know which 
technology is being used. Um, and when we're lawyers, we, we normally put on our consumer hat and we try and review a program and tell the client, yes, that works, or you need to make a few tweaks here. Figuring out if the CAN-SPAM Act applies is not something we can do just by looking. So really we have to ask the client, and then the client turns around and asks the vendor they're working with, are you using this technology? Mm. And most of the time the answer is no. Then the last law, there's, there's one more, is the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. And that law applies generally um, to pretty much all text messages that are sent. And what exactly does that say? So the, tel so the Telephone Consumer Protection Act says that we need to get um, consent before we send a text message. And the reason why we need to get consent, the, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, it's sort of what it sounds like. It was initially designed to have to do with making phone calls, um, but it applies to making phone calls to cell phones. And when we make a call to a cell phone, the way we might make the call is using what's called an called auto dial technology. And, and with all of this stuff, I, I didn't start out life trying to be a techie, but I need to <laughs> learn all kinds of technology right. to figure out how, whether these laws apply or not. So I, I know enough to be dangerous. Right. <laughs> um, so the Telephone Consumer Protection Act requires that we get consent when we're making a call to a cell phone if we're using auto dial technology. Text messages right now, the way the TCPA is being interpreted by the federal agency that enforces it, as well as by various courts, is that if it is a text message, it must be sent involving auto-dial technology. So the requirement under the TCPA when we have auto-dial technology is that we have to get consent. And there's the difference between the TCPA and the CAN-SPAM Act, the one that I referred to that we're all familiar with from an email standpoint. The big difference is what kind of consent we have to get. So under the TCPA, we just need to make sure people understand what it is they're agreeing to get and then make sure that they agree. Under CAN-SPAM, on the other hand, they actually have to give us a signed signature consent. Now that signature can be electronic. We could also get verbal consent, which probably wouldn't happen, but we could get an electronic signature. And, but that can be complicated. There's also restrictions on what content has to be in the message, and, and CAN-SPAM can be pretty involved if we try and adhere to it, which is why, for the most part, people don't use that technology. Right. The TCPA consent is a lot easier, and it allows companies to engage in the type of um, mobile activity that we probably see the most of, which is if you're driving down the street or you're, you're walking. Well, hopefully you're not texting while you're driving, but you're going <laughs> not in California. Store. Yes, we, we, we've probably got the same law that you can't be <laughs> using your cell phone and sending text messages while you're, you're driving the car, um, or you can't use... Here in Chicago, you can't, you have to be on a handset to use your a headset to use your phone. Uh -huh. um, but you'll see a billboard, you'll see an ad in a, a magazine, um, and it will tell you to text a code to a certain number, um, and and you'll be entered for a chance to win, or you get to vote. On we see this a lot with with television shows. 
or vote for your favorite contestant. So we're watching Project Runway, and um, we get to vote for who's got the, you know, the best hat. Or we can donate even that way. We can text a message yeah. and donate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's become very popular. So the TCPA allows that under the theory that if we sent you a message back, if we made it really clear in the call to action, in the in the message that you saw, the billboard or the the, the thing that you saw in the magazine, we made it clear what was going to happen, and you took that affirmative step to text us, then that was you giving consent. And that works under TCPA. The carriers actually have their own additional requirements. So we might have to send you something back to say, did you really consent to, to get this? Did you really want this to happen? But that wouldn't work under CAN spam because that's not really an electronic signature. Okay, so let me ask you something. So let's say you do respond to something on a billboard and you vote. Does that mean that you've got given consent for all future texts or just for the response? So it really depends. This is where the Deceptive Trade Practices Act <laughs> can be very helpful. That coupled with um, self-regulation. Because the, the, the issue is going to be what did the consumer think that they were giving consent for? Right. Um, and so if I texted in... Um, and said, I want to vote, mm -hmm. did I really think as a consumer that I was giving consent to now being added to a, a mobile marketing list? And this is, a, this is, I was looking for an example before, this is a great example of where consumer expectations are starting to be shaped based off of self-regulatory guidelines. The right. Mobile Marketing Association is the group that has guidelines for companies that are sending text messages. And under the Mobile Marketing Association guidelines, there, there are procedures in place to help protect companies and, and also consumers against sending messages that a consumer wouldn't expect to get. So you really want to make sure that the consumer knows what they're getting. So I might work with a client, for example, and say, let's make it clear in our advertisement where we're telling someone, text this number to vote and to get X, Y, or Z. And, and we want to be careful about it, though, um, because the, a question comes up, well, how long will that consent last? Yeah. So someone yeah. might want to text to vote and to start getting our newsletter, our elect, our text message newsletter, or, or whatever that might look like. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the the concern is, especially with newsletters, well, that could take a million different forms. And is that really consent to use the number forever? And not only that, when you pay for text messages, that's that's a huge issue. That's that's far. Um, more involved than just getting an email message that you're getting for free. If you're getting a text message and you pay for a certain amount of data, it's going to cost you a fortune to start getting all these text messages. Right. It's like, and you know, so, it's like what we had to do with fax machines. People did, got inundated yeah. with faxes and they finally had to pass a law and say, no, you can't do that. And you could be sued for doing that in California. Right. Well, yeah, anywhere you can be sued right. for the, the right. fax. Um, and, and so, 
what we're seeing from the industry guidelines is that consent really shouldn't last forever. And there was actually a class action lawsuit um, brought several years ago, and you're going to ask me against whom, and I've, I've of course, forgotten. It okay. was a social media <laughs> company um, who will, fortunately re for them, remain nameless because I can't remember. That's okay. Uh, and, and that company uh, was sued on the grounds that they were using consent when a, a user had registered, they, they would register and they would register to get some of the information on their social media site sent to them by text. And so they would give consent to get that information. And this case settled, so it was never decided in the court one way or another. But the, the class action, the basis was, well, you've got people who no longer hold those cell phone numbers anymore. So you're still sending the text alert to the same phone number, wow. uh -huh. but it's not the phone number of the person who originally registered with your site. And, and I suppose from you know, other laws and other issues, you've got concerns about, well, now all of a sudden we're, we're sending information about person A and it's going to person B. So the MMA guidelines, so those industry guidelines, do try and protect companies and take this into account and therefore also um, protecting consumers to say, you know, don't, don't have these consents last forever. The consents should be, there should be an end date to it. And, and actually what the guidelines say is that you should tell consumers how long it is that they're going to be receiving these messages. And, and let them know what types of messages be really clear. I know nowadays most people can take your phone number to any cell phone. So I could have a cell phone number for five years, even if I go from one company to the other. Yeah. So, so that, yeah. that other issue wouldn't necessarily be the problem, but I think the problem is having to pay for these text messages that you don't want to have and, and having a way to opt out that's very easily, you know, it's, if you consented, if you had prior consent, you know, how, do, how the heck do you get out of this? I think that would be really important to let them know as well. I don't want to get these anymore. I thought I'd like the newsletter. I hate it. <laughs> I don't want to get it anymore. Right. So. And that's, that's actually, that's, again, an area where the self-regulatory guidelines um, come into play and say that you need to tell people that's an ongoing set of messages. Maybe someone signs up to get a joke of a week or a joke of the week or some, their, their horoscope or something like that that there's a way to say, okay, I'm done. I don't want to get these messages anymore. That's actually required under the CAN-SPAM Act. Again, that's that one that it rarely applies because we're not really using that technology. Right. Um, but that actually, the method for opting out would have to be in every message, which given the size of text messages is virtually impossible. The mobile marketing guidelines let you do it sometimes, not always, but sometimes in like every other message. But that's why we see um, more and more now consumers are seeing text stop to stop and text help for help. Um, so th these are things to, to let consumers easily opt out of getting um, this type of message if they don't want to get it anymore. Well, what about when can a marketer leave a pre-recorded advertising message either on a cell or on a landline? There's another hot topic issue. Um, and this one uh, just changed. Um, and pre-recorded advertising is, um, is, is not used very often. Um, but under new um, guidance from the FTC, 
we and, and this is actually a regulation under the T T C. Oh well, I'm gonna the, the telephone telemarketing consumer fraud and abuse act. Um, and so under this law, um, we need to get affirmative signed consent before we leave a pre-recorded advertising message. So that mm. isn't the you know the telemarketer who calls you and there's that gap before they start talking. This is the, the message where it's actually a recording that's calling you. And so you need to have the consumer's signed consent. Again, mm. the signature can be electronic. But Gee, I just got one of those, a couple of those recently, and I didn't give any consent. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I so I don't, you know, I just hang too. up. And, my, and, and uh, now would that be for consumer as well as businesses? Because I get them at home, which I, you know, obviously I, along with everybody else in the world, have opted out, <laughs> you know, have done the opt out with the Federal Trade Commission for my phone numbers. But um, I am getting those at home. They're just recorded messages and they aren't all just the political stuff for the November 4th election. They're, they're really other kinds of advertising messages, which just blew me away. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's, this is, this is one of those mysteries. And, and I think for some of my clients, the frustration is that we have clients that work extremely hard to understand these laws, to follow these laws, to make sure that they're adhering to the letter of the law. And then there are these companies out there that are really, they're often offshore um, and, and they just, they're scams and they're right. set up to do the wrong thing. Uh, and I also started getting some of these recently and, and it's a, it's an outfit that's pretending to be a real company, uh -huh. but they're not a real company. And it, it's very difficult for law enforcement to, to go after them. It's hard to find them. They're not identifying who they are. They're just, they're, they're blatantly ignoring all of the requirements that are in place. Hmm. So how do you how do you deal? Well, I know what my secretary told me when we get those calls for the business, she just like pushes zero 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 or something like that, and she thinks that helps. I don't know if it does, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But uh, or just you know push the 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 button somewhere. That's what that, I guess it makes her feel better. I don't I don't know if that's really the case or not. But it is pretty crazy. I mean, if it's offshore, we don't have any jurisdiction over that. Yeah, there's a there's from what I understand, and this is not um, an area that I practice in, but from what I understand with respect to you know these criminal groups that are doing this, there the um, there's various federal agencies that have recently entered into agreements with foreign governments to try and make it easier to go after um, these offshore criminals. But hmm. th those are not the types of companies that I work with. Right. No, I'm sure. So we have a lot of companies that might be driving by here in Orange County, California, and other people who are listening in across the nation. So what steps can a company take when, when working with a vendor who's helping them with a mobile marketing campaign? What should they be doing? This is, this is always an exciting question because we work both with the companies that are hiring the vendors and the vendors themselves. But for now, I'll put on my hat of someone who's um, hiring a vendor um, one of the, the most important things is to find a vendor who really understands the law and the requirements. And I actually have a couple companies that I work with and that I know of that will not work with a vendor 
who's not a member of a self-regulate an, an industry group. So they won't work with a company that isn't a member of the Mobile Marketing Association, for example, um, because they they really want to have on their team a company that knows this stuff backwards and forwards. And often companies are hiring vendors because the company isn't that familiar with this area. This is a new area for them, and they want to bring on an expert. So right, right. they really want to make sure that the, the company that they're working with is indeed an expert. And then, of course, there's those things that we lawyers love to do, which is putting together the contracts. Um, but we try and be practical here, which is um, the most important, again, who is your vendor? Do they know this area? But we, we like to have our contractual enforcement and obligation. And one thing that, that we really insist on having in there is an indemnification. And so for the vendor to indemnify our client to promise that if anything goes wrong, they're going to pay for their mistake. And um, not only that, and you know, because I, I deal with as an expert witness on privacy cases, and one of the things that seems to me really important is that these companies should say that the vendor must comply with all laws and comply, like if they are a member of the Mobile Marketing Association, that they comply with the principles of the Mobile Marketing Association. Because, you know, you got to hold them to some standard. That, that's why you hired them, because they were a member of the Mobile Marketing Association. Absolutely. So we always want to have them comply with the laws. And just as you say, with the industry principles, we'll often put in there... This will sometimes come up that um, the, the, the vendor will put something together. They'll say it complies with the law. The client brings me on board or brings on their own lawyer to take a look, and there's a disagreement between what the company thinks is acceptable and what the vendor thinks is acceptable. And often um, the, the reputation of vendors is sometimes that they're willing to take on more risk because it's not their brand. I don't right. think that's always the case, but, but sometimes they, they, they are a little riskier. Um, or the brand, you know, they, they might just not want to take on a, a certain level of risk. So we also will try and put into the contract that if we, as a company, think that something needs to be changed from a legal perspective, that that's not going to be viewed as a change order. That, that, that we're not going to get charged extra for making that change. And, and also that there's enough time baked in to the development process so that legal review can happen. Um, the one other thing that's tied to both of these, the indemnification and the representations, the promises, are that there's some money behind it. Um, because you might have a vendor who's very happy to indemnify you and to promise the moon and we'll make sure everything's perfect, Something unfortunately goes wrong. No one wants that to happen, but the vendor might not have any money, so they might get sued. The the company um, might be a major brand. They've got a lot of money. They're the ones that are going to get sued. You want to make sure that your vendor that you're working with has some insurance in place that will cover an eventual lawsuit, and that obviously helps the, the vendor as well. Exactly. It's a tough time now with all this technology, you know, because even if you have this great contract, you have to have it somewhat flexible as as technology changes and as the bad guys get smarter. 
<laughs> you know, there's always something that is going to be a problem in the future with these issues. So you've got to build in some way that everybody's got to keep up to the current standards, not just the, the laws that were at the time or not even just the mobile marketing uh, principles. They have to be the, the flexible, evolving principles, right? Absolutely. And that's, that's, I think, one of the challenges of contract drafting is, is you're always trying to anticipate the bad thing happening. Uh, and I think that's actually where we in private practice um, are, are in a good position. Um, because when we work in a law firm and we see lots and lots and lots of contracts for the same type of event, so for mobile marketing or behavioral advertising or what have you in the advertising realm, we've seen all the different things that can come up. And so from a litigation side, we've seen where things have gone wrong. And from a procedural side, from a contract negotiation side, we've seen the various issues that have happened. And so we can help put into the contract protections for things that, that in our experience that have happened that someone who's never done this before, and, you know, companies aren't constantly entering into agreements to do text message advertising. So the, the people might, you, the people in-house might not have seen those issues. So I think that's really where we can add a lot of value for our clients. Terrific. Yeah, we're speaking with Lisa Thomas, who has this unique advertising law practice, which I think as you're listening and you're thinking of getting into this with your business, this is the type of law firm that you're going to really need. They provide privacy law counseling to major consumer brands, advertising agencies, consumer research companies. And the name of the firm in Chicago is Winston and Strawn. That's W-I-N-S-T-O-N and Strawn. And the website is Winston, W-I-N-S-T-O-N dot com. So let's switch gears a little and talk about the infamous Facebook. <laughs> As a matter of fact, my, my daughter and I are writing an article on Facebook right now. She's hoping to go to law school, so she's working for me. She uh, And we've been really following all these issues on Facebook, whether it's advertising or all the privacy issues or even identity theft that, that occurs as a result of privacy uh, fallout on the uh, Facebook. But you have some very interesting information about Facebook Connect. Why don't you talk a little bit about advertising through Facebook? Absolutely. And, and I should mention as we're, we're discussing where Winston is located that we are actually across the country, including right in downtown L.A. Oh, so, perfect. Okay, yes, good. Yeah, good. so we, we have offices in both L.A. and San Francisco and in lots of places other than just Chicago. Okay. Um, so one of the, the virtual issues that comes up in the world is Facebook Connect. And um, I think Facebook has become a, a, lo a geographic location of its own. Um, I, I think I read somewhere, if it was a country, it would be the sixth largest country yes. in the world. Yes. Or yeah. So it, this is this is a big community, um, and it's not surprising that companies want to interact with individuals in that community. Um, we have people that want to advertise in the country of the United States, and we could imagine that people want to advertise in the country that is Facebook. And so Facebook has some applications that are available to companies that have their own website that allows those companies to interact with the Facebook website. And Facebook Connect 
is one of those platforms that allows a website to interact with Facebook. And so people on the phone might have run into this, or people that are listening to the show might have run into this. Um, when they go onto a website, they might be prompted when they're, maybe they want to register for that site. They might actually be prompted to log in with Facebook. Right. And if they select that option, what happens behind the scenes is that they are now authorizing Facebook to give the website some very basic information about themselves from their Facebook profile, which kind of makes sense. I mean, you're logging in with Facebook. And then Facebook has some pretty detailed rules for websites who want to use these platforms about how they can use um, these programs at, that allow the data and the information about the users to go from Facebook to the third-party website. So how transparent is that? You know, I mean, I have a Facebook account and I, you know, for businesses, for my business, and I haven't used that. And I've gone to websites and I've seen that, but I haven't used that. So how, when, if I were a user, how would it be transparent to me what's happening behind the scenes? When you're a user, the Connect application doesn't happen until you say it can. Okay. So it's not like there's something going on that you don't know about um, in terms of this site is now linking with Facebook. Um, so if you say, I want to log in with Facebook, you're clicking an affirmative button that, that is going to make that happen. Um, it, it's not a, a mystery feature that's happening in the background. So I will know that they will have access to my public Facebook account? That's right. The, the, the requirements um, of the Facebook platforms, these place, Facebook applications, are, um, include that you, that you have a privacy policy, that you tell people what's happening to their information and how their information is going to be used. Um, so so it, it shouldn't be a mystery. And the, 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 the times that I've seen it and the, the versions that I've reviewed that clients are putting together, it's very clear that when you click a button, it's about to make interaction with Facebook happen. And I think it actually it will prompt you, oh, you need to log into your Facebook account. You're not currently logged in. It, it's very um, – it, 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 it makes a lot of sense to the user when it's happening. Okay, so if I want to do it, I'll, I'll figure that out. But are there <laughs> restrictions on how that information could be used? Are there real restrictions? Yeah, so there, there's these rules that Facebook has in place um, for all of their Connect features. Um, the rules do change rather frequently. Um, and I think as, as consumers, as, as users of Facebook, we're all familiar with, you know, Facebook has updated their rules. Facebook has updated their policies. <laughs> yeah, um, it's crazy making. <laughs> yeah, so the, these are, these are, it's a challenge for right. companies that want to use these applications um, because they do, they do change, um, but there, there are restrictions in place on how the information can be used and, and what you should um, do when you're collecting the information. So it, it's absolutely, if there are, um, people um, listening in that are uh, working at companies that are thinking about using these features, you, you definitely want to review the Facebook rules and make sure you understand them and also make sure that 
you build into your process on an ongoing basis a way to stay on top of those changes that will inevitably happen to the rules. Yeah. And are they members of, of like these, um, you know, have they signed on? Has Facebook and, and these vendors signed? Well, I don't know about all the vendors, but has Facebook signed on to some of the principles that you talked about that are similar to the guidelines for the FTC in terms of direct of, of uh, behavioral marketing? You know, that's a great, a great question. They could have. I don't know the answer to okay. that. Okay, okay. Didn't mean to throw you. <laughs> it's not a problem. I, they, they're, it's, it's, I'm sure it's publicly available information. It's just so, not information I have. I know. So what, what watchouts should we have if we're thinking of using this Facebook connection? Are there any specific watchouts just to be careful that they're they're constantly changing the rules, or you know, the one watch out that we're seeing right now as is a potential issue is that let's say you you use what's called a single sign in feature. That's the one I mentioned where you could select login with Facebook, and so instead of registering on a website using the website's registration process, it's faster because we get to log into that website using our Facebook account. So I gotcha. Mm-hmm. If a website uses that process, if they don't want to use that, it's called a platform application anymore, then they can only keep the basic profile information that they gathered through the process. And so the companies that use these applications definitely want to think about what are we going to do if we decide that we don't want to do this anymore? Right. Are we going to lose that information? Yeah. And we can keep the information if we get affirmative consent from the consumer. So that is one option, actually, is to say, oh, we're thinking about taking this, this process down. Before we do, let's think about going out and getting consent and saying, you know, this is something that we're not going to be doing anymore. But if you want to keep, um, you know, if you want us to keep all of this um, registration information, then, or whatever the other information is, then these are the steps you need to take. I haven't had clients that have gotten to this point yet because everybody's now jumping on board to, hey, let's use these programs. But again, that's my role is to say, well, what Slow happens down. at yeah. the end? <laughs> um, so this is something that I think we're going to see evolve and develop is that end time. And talking about end time, would you believe is that perfect timing? It is time for us to end. You have just been such a great wealth, a treasure trove of wonderful information about marketing and ethical marketing and responsible information handling. So we thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. You've just been a terrific guest. And we well, Mari, thank you. This was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed it. Okay, we will have you back soon. Just give your website, and then we'll go on. All right. Well, the website is Winston.com, W-I-N-S-T-O-N.com. And they have offices around the country. So thank you, Lisa, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you, Mari. Okay. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. Also, visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. There you can see our upcoming guests. You can see their bios, their pictures, go to their websites. You can listen to archived interviews, and you can download podcasts. 
And most of all, we'd love to hear from you. So please write us emails right from there about your concerns and questions about privacy in the information age. Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.